All right, everybody, this is episode 26 of the Beef and Bitcoin podcast with your host, CH. We're going to do chapter two of Dare Gigi's 21 Lessons. Uh, if you listen to episode 25, we went over chapter one, which is the philosophy of Bitcoin and all the things that Dare Gigi learned over his journey down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. So today we're going to go through chapter two, which is uh, around the economics of Bitcoin. And I think this is a good one to definitely read through yourself. I would go through and listen to the audio version of this as well, and then take a deeper dive into this section because um, if you're new to Bitcoin or new to Austrian economics or um, a lot of the economics around Bitcoin, you're definitely gonna wanna take a deeper dive on this stuff. And there's a lot of recommended reading that uh, Dare Gigi has included in the 21 Lessons website. So make sure you check it out, give it a listen, listen to this hopefully to just uh, get your mind going a little bit and then uh, take a deeper dive for yourself. All right, so let's, uh, let's jump down. Lesson eight uh, is around financial ignorance. And um, <laughs> this makes a ton of sense because what I've found out through my own journey down the Bitcoin rabbit hole is that Bitcoin is a hell of a teacher. Uh, it will teach you things about, in this case, economics, philosophy, and uh, technical aspects of, of Bitcoin. Um, but the economics piece really pissed me off as I was going down the rabbit hole because you can spend a lot of time in school, college, university, learning about economics and um, and walk out of school thinking you have a good understanding of, of how things work from an economic standpoint. And then something like Bitcoin comes along and takes everything that you learned and turns it completely upside down. And um, it sucks going through that uh, alone in this case, you know, I, I didn't have too many people to talk, um, to talk about, to talk with about Bitcoin. So I kind of just had to jump down the rabbit hole myself and it can be super frustrating to, uh, learn a lot of the economics or surrounding Bitcoin and, and how it works. And, you know, everyone's going to have to come realize their own economic reality as Bitcoin slowly, but surely becomes adopted as money. And it will be very difficult for uh, your fellow Keynesians to come up with a good enough argument as to say why Bitcoin can't succeed. And there's a ton of reasons why Bitcoin can't succeed, but it hasn't, but it, it's still around. It's been 10 years and it works every single day, every 10 minutes, a new block, um, is added to uh, Bitcoin's time chain, and it keeps chugging along. So for the naysayers out there, ch check out 21 Lessons and, and take a deeper dive. <clears throat> but I wanted to read a couple of these quotes here from 21 Lessons on Lesson 8. Um, here's, here's the first one. Isn't it ironic that Bitcoin has taught me more about money than all these years I've spent working for financial institutions, including starting my career at a central bank? Yeah, that's a that's a really powerful quote there because you have um, you have people who've literally spent their entire lives um, dedicated to the Keynesian school of economics and putting that uh, theory into practice and basically getting shit for results. Um, yeah, so let's keep going here. There's another quote by 
um, Robert Kiyosaki, which is he's a pretty popular um, writer in the personal finance space. Uh, if you've ever read um, Rich Dad Poor Dad, uh, if you haven't, you you might want to actually go ahead and read that. It's um, very interesting to go through and and see how saving and investing uh, through time. Uh, certainly pays off in the long run as long as you've done your due diligence. Uh, And Robert Kiyosaki says, those crashes, these bailouts are not accidents. And neither is it an accident that there is no financial education in school. It's premeditated. Just as prior to the Civil War, it was illegal to educate a slave. We are not allowed to learn about money in school. Um, I definitely agree with Robert uh, here. There's certainly a reason why we are not taught anything about sound money um, in school, uh, mainly because y- you have the uh, a ton of funding from people who make more money, making sure that the masses are educated on the Keynesian school, because that's the the reality that we live in today. And if you were to educate yourself on on sound money, um, maybe similar to when the when the planet was on a gold standard, and you'd see how much we thrived and flourished. Um, people might not be too happy to realize that they've been exchanging pieces of paper with no value attached to them for a very long time, and things have certainly gotten a little bit out of whack. But we'll touch on more of that in one of the uh, additional lessons as we go through here. And then uh, Dare Gigi says, Bitcoin taught me to look behind the curtain and face my financial ignorance. And I couldn't agree more with, um, with that statement. I thought I was pretty knowledgeable on finance and economics and uh, investing and and saving and you know maybe trading and uh, I realized I I really didn't and Bitcoin is 100% the wake up call that is needed to um, ground yourself into the economic realities of of what Bitcoin is so. Uh, definitely take the financial ignorance portion very seriously and and hit the books and the podcast and the audiobooks because there's a ton to learn and it will only strengthen your investment theses when it comes to Bitcoin. All right, let's move on to uh, lesson nine: inflation. Uh, inflation. This is a this is a good one. This uh, I would definitely recommend going through this one yourself as well because there's a lot to touch on regarding inflation and deflation and um, some of the problems that inflationary monetary systems cause in the long term. And it's not always very easy to see what those impacts are in the short term. And you hear a lot about people saying, well, there is no inflation right now. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's 2%. It's pegged. Well, when you take a deeper dive, you realize that while that may be the case for a certain basket of goods, like the consumer price index, that basket changes pretty frequently, and it's not—we're um, not told <laughs> how much that basket changes so much over time. Um, and also, you can see that the majority of the inflation we're seeing, at least in the United States and many other parts of the globe, is uh, asset inflation. So, while it might not cost another 300% to go to the movies, um, you'll see real estate in metropolitan areas like San Francisco, the prices have skyrocketed tremendously in the past few decades. And there's many reasons for that. But um, you see pretty much anything that has the most government regulation 
and intervention seems to feel the inflation the most. So the three off the top of my head would be real estate, um, healthcare, and education. Um, those three things in particular have increased substantially in price over the last few decades. And um, it's just, it's more difficult to see when we're talking about something like food or um, consumable goods where, you know, the prices are low enough that it's very easy not to think twice about the, the cost of something. But if you have someone who's 18 years old today and they need to make a decision about what college they're going to go to or what, what they want to learn to do as a career, they're faced with a difficult circumstance where they might have to shell out 100 to $200,000 to learn a skill that has a very long payback period, um, whether it be at a, an accounting degree, a business administration degree, a liberal arts degree, you might be getting a job out of school for, say, uh, $40,000 to $50,000, and you need to pay back a $200,000 loan. Even if you spent zero for four years, um, it would take you four years to pay back that loan, assuming no interest and you spent zero, which we know is not going to happen. Um, so it's things like that where where we're really seeing the impacts of inflation. And there's a quote from Henry Hazlitt that I wanted to read here. Um, and, and, and this is this is kind of driving home the point. The art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. Um, and this is, uh, as an example, you could talk about real estate prices in, in San Francisco, as an example. So there were there are many um, regulations and laws that forbid the... Um, increase in construction in San Francisco. So that is artificially um, keeping the supply of housing down, which is raising the prices of the homes that are already there. So if you bought a house in San Francisco 20 or 30 years ago for say $300,000 and you realize that the prices of real estate were increasing substantially in California and you voted to limit the amount of construction real estate construction there could be over time, you're artificially capping the amount of real estate that could be in existence in that area. So therefore, you are increasing the price of the existing housing that's already there. So you're pretty much voting to pump your own bags. Um, I get it. I could see why somebody would do that. It, it definitely sucks for the people who want to buy homes there. But it's things like that that make it um, that, that intervention piece, that additional regulation that has tremendous impacts. So they're not thinking about um, the mass exodus that happens 20 years later when um, many of the people who live in the state of California are choosing to vacate because of high taxes, um, maybe property taxes, income taxes, and the high cost of, of real estate. So there's a good chance that some of the people looking to dump their real estate bags in an inflated um, a price inflated area for real estate might not have anyone to dump their bags on because I sure as shit won't be buying a house in California because I don't want someone else's bags dumped on me. Why would I do that? Um, so definitely check out Henry Hazlitt's economics in one lesson. Um, that will go through 
so many good pieces of of um, economics that you that will absolutely help you understand Bitcoin better. Uh, it was my favorite economics book so far. That's probably the only one you would need to get a really good understanding of what's going on as a bare minimum from an economic standpoint. Uh, I wish that would have been given to me in college or high school because the book makes complete sense. It's all based on logic and reason, and uh, it will it will make sense for you as you go through it as well. There's a couple of other quotes here. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see um, there are two pictures of the hyperinflation from the Weimar Republic in Germany. And it's it's pictures of of kids and children literally playing with um, the paper money that had hyperinflated away. And in one, they're they're building like a little pyramid. And in the other, they are <laughs> they are flying a kite made out of paper money, um, and that is that's a symptom of of hyperinflation. We're seeing that in Venezuela as we speak. It is unbelievable to see, and many people think that oh, you know, hyperinflation can't happen in my country. It will it will never happen in the United States. Um, and while I, I can understand why it feels like that would never happen, it absolutely can happen because hyperinflation is unpredictable and um, even small amounts of inflation tend to lead to large amounts of inflation and it happens very quickly and very rapidly, uh, which is also a really good argument for someone who's maybe thinking about the world a little bit differently and, and concerned about what they're portfolio looks like um, and you know is, is inflation around the corner uh, you know how do you hedge yourself properly do you take a, a small position of your of your net worth and, and put it into Bitcoin as a, as a hedge and <clears throat> there's a lot of good um, statistical evidence to say that that actually could be a, a, a good investment strategy and I would highly recommend um, reading some of the work that plan B, has put out. You can Google 100 trillion USD and find his work on Medium. Uh, it's very good, and it's showing like a 1% Bitcoin allocation and 99% cash has been um, outperforming, say, the the S&P 500 returns um, for the last uh, several years. So th- that's an interesting strategy. Um, and you know, also this is not an investment advice, <clears throat> but definitely take that kind of stuff seriously because um, that change could be, or, or that investment thesis could be a potential game changer, especially for the reason is because anybody now has access to Bitcoin. It's much easier for someone to get their hands on a little bit of Bitcoin and your average person can can kind of do that strategy without even knowing it. They don't have to know how to read financial statements, cash flow statements, any of that to, um, let's say, invest in the equities markets. But um they know enough to understand what Bitcoin is and don't mind buying a couple bucks worth here and there and holding it and keeping their cash and letting things um, go the way it should. Uh, and one last quote from Hayek is, mild steady inflation cannot help. It can lead only to outright inflation. And that's something that... Um, uh, and one, one more quote from Hayek. I do not think it is an exaggeration to say history is largely a history of inflation and usually of inflations engineered by governments for the gain of governments. 
And that makes a ton of sense because if you have keys to the printing press, you most certainly will um, be much more tempted to uh, to take advantage of that power. And if you haven't gotten a chance to read Safetyne's book, The Bitcoin Standard, I highly recommend um, reading it or listening to it on Audible. He also has a number of uh, different talks for his last book tour that some of them can be an hour, hour and a half long. You check those out on YouTube. I've probably watched all of them in 2018 and they can give you a little bit more color to the book and it would probably be worth your time to watch a few of those, read or listen to the book to help you uh, really get a good understanding. And and Safetyne hits it right here with this last quote. History has shown that governments will inevitably succumb to the temptation of inflating the money supply. Right? I mean, can you blame anybody? They have the they have the uh, the keys to the to the printing press, and uh, they can push the button whenever they want. And it's a great way to try to get yourself out of trouble. Um, at least it doesn't really get yourself out of trouble because typically you're just kicking the can further and further down the road, and uh, that has its own its own impacts. So definitely check this out. All right, let's move on to lesson 10, value. Now value is interesting. Dare Gigi goes into the subjective theory of value, which basically says something's worth whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. And people have different preferences of what um, different things are worth. Whereas you might hear someone say, well, the value of something is how much work or effort went into it and you know that's how you get your basis of uh, of cost and then you can you can price it after the fact and a, a common um rebuttal to that would be well if you went and dug a hole and it took you five hours and your time's worth 10 bucks an hour well the bare minimum that that hole is worth is 50 bucks and you could sell me that for 60 bucks and, and make your margin. And I might say, well, I don't give a shit about your hole at all because it's dumb. You just wasted five hours of your life and lost. If your time's worth 10 bucks an hour, you just lost 50 bucks. I'll give you, you know, I'll give you one Satoshi for that hole and uh, whatever, right? So thing value is subjective. <clears throat> I wanted to read some of these other quotes here because I think they're uh, worth going through. So something might be precious for us for a variety of reasons, but things we value do share certain characteristics. If we can copy something very easily, or if it is naturally abundant, we do not value it. Um, that's a really good point, and I think that has a lot to do with the the proof of work aspect of Bitcoin, because it is very costly to produce, and you should check out Nick Zabo's writings on all of his writings uh, pertaining to Bitcoin and, and money, the first of which is shelling out, and the second is money, blockchains, and social scalability. Um, and you know, humans are not that complicated. We like rare shit. Um, if something is easy, we don't value it the same, right? So that's why not everybody goes and um, let's say becomes a doctor or a lawyer because it's a difficult. Um, profession to get into. It requires a ton of study, a ton of dedication and hard work, and um, it's hard to do, right? So not everyone is going to do that. 
and it, it we value that skill much more because of the amount of work and effort that went into acquiring that skill. And money is no different here. If money grew on trees, it wouldn't be worth anything because you didn't have to work that hard to get it. And I think that's where Bitcoin really changes the game here because the only way to acquire Bitcoin is to have an upfront cost of purchasing, let's say, mining equipment um, to get started, and then your operating cost of paying for electricity to continue the mining operation uh, to then earn your Bitcoin. The only other way to do it is to earn it, right? And you can provide a service or good that people are willing to give up their Bitcoin for. And I think that's going to be a great test in the future for, for business models. If someone is willing to give up their Bitcoin for your good or service, you might be onto something. Uh, and the reason is because it is valued so highly subjectively, right? There's another quote I want to read here. Um, Bitcoin is above all, it is extremely rare, 21 million. Increasingly hard to produce, the reward happening, can't be replaced, a lost private key is lost forever and enables us to do some quite useful things. It is arguably the best tool for value transfer across borders, virtually resistant to censorship and confiscation in the process. Plus, it is a self-sovereign store of value, allowing individuals to store their wealth independent of banks and governments, just to name two. So, and then Bitcoin taught me that value is subjective and not arbitrary. So definitely... Um, that's something you want to think more deeply about is the uh, subjective uh, theory of value. Okay, let's move on to lesson 11, money. Okay, so, you know, what is money really? Um, why didn't we learn about money more when we were in school? Or if you're in school, why ask your teacher why you're not learning about it now. Tell them to uh, go over the, the saleability aspects of money and, and see what they say. I'm, sh I'm sure they won't say much. Um, but money is really just a technology uh, where something that is money can be exchanged for anything else, right? So it's, um, it's a store of value, a medium of exchange, and a unit of account. And it allows human beings to scale socially because we can um, have the division of labor and we can specialize in certain things. So if I'm, let's say, good at making memes, I can specialize and focus solely on making memes, and then I can use the money that I make and trade for other goods and services. Um, with the shoemaker, who's really good at making shoes, um, can just focus on making shoes, and they don't have to worry about anything else, and so on and so forth. So it allows us to scale as a society. And Bitcoin is very powerful because it allows us to scale globally because we have a non-sovereign money that is permissionless and free for anybody to use. And that has um, profound implications on what our world will look like if we're all using one thing as money, which is exactly what money is, right? If you're using multiple things as money, that's barter. Um, you have to calculate the exchange rates for different um money substitutes with other goods and services. And it's just a pain in the ass. You can't do proper economic calculation for it. And it still blows my mind that so many people that I talk to are continue to tell me, oh, there's gonna be utility tokens for this and we're gonna use a token for that. And 
I can understand how you would think that because we have more than one thing as money today, even though the US dollar is the primary unit of account across the globe. Um, people still think this. And I don't think it's that crazy to think, yeah, it would be way easier if we just use one thing as money. Obviously, the problem is we never had a tool that could scale in such a way that allowed us to use one thing as money on a global scale. So definitely, um, definitely read Nick Szabo's Shelling Out the Origins of, the origins of Money. Um, it's a fantastic read. Goes through... Um, shells and jewelry and, and, and monetary metals and how money has, has evolved over time. And that will pair very nicely with uh, Safe Dean's The Bitcoin Standard. And I wanted to read uh, this one Ron Paul quote. Given that money is one half of every commercial transaction and that whole civilizations literally rise and fall based on the quality of their money, we are talking about an awesome power, one that flies under the cover of night. It is the power to weave illusions that appear real as long as they last. That is the very core of the Fed's power. Uh, you know, Ron Paul <laughs> is a fantastic human being. Definitely check out uh, Ron Paul videos or the Liberty, Liberty Report. He understands Austrian economics perfectly. Um, he definitely wants to end the Fed and ha has a book about ending the Fed um, that I would highly recommend checking out. Um, and, and, you know, finally, one of the best lessons that Bitcoin teaches you is what money is, because you realize that all of a sudden you're using this magic internet money and you think it's val valuable and you think it could be worth much more in the future. Um, why is that? And, and how has your thought process about what money is uh, started to change? And I think that's a, that's an unbelievable thing to think about. So, um, as we said before, Bitcoin will will teach you a ton about many, many different things. Let's move on to lesson 12, the downfall of money. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about what fiat money is. And I'm going to read this, uh, this one section here. If something is imposed by fiat, it simply means that it is imposed by formal authorization or proposition. Thus, fiat money is money simply because someone says that it is money. Since all governments use fiat currency today, this someone is your government. Unfortunately, you are not free to disagree with, the, with this value proposition. You will quickly feel that this Proposition is everything but nonviolent. If you refuse to use this paper currency to do business and pay taxes, the only people you will be able to discuss economics with will be your cellmates. And that has a lot to do with um, legal tender laws, right? So, you know, you are forced to use whichever money is um, declared money by uh, your particular jurisdiction. Um, not going to complain about it. It is what it is. And I'm certainly not going to complain about it now because everyone has access to Bitcoin, which is unbelievable. And that allows us to have a free market money again. Um, things were really great when we were on a gold standard. Uh, reading Safedine's book will paint a clearer picture of that. But now you're seeing um, in Bitcoin something that really can't be stopped. Um, there is no off switch. And it is very difficult to um, censor Bitcoin transactions, which is uh, it's a real game changer. And 
definitely go through and, and read all of this. Um, there's a lot to there's a lot to read and to know regarding the downfall of different monies over time, and typically how in inflation for each of these different societies using money led to their inevitable collapse. Um, and Safetyne goes over a number of different examples there. And you know you can also see this in your daily life right now, because the chances are you live in a country that um, is using a fiat currency, and it is 100% um, being inflated right now. And there's nothing you can really do about it except to opt out and choose to use a different um, thing as money. And the reason why uh, I think it's important to look into why gold lost to fiat, and that's because um, gold has certain flaws as a money that don't allow it to scale socially um, very uh, in, a, in a global scale, let's say, because of the um, centralization and vaults problem, as an example. So in order for gold to scale uh, and to be used as, let's say, a faster method of payment, um, coinage and uh, paper money backed by gold was used as, let's say, a layer two technology in this example, because it was too difficult to shave a little piece of gold off of a, you know, a bar of gold to then pay for you know, something that was um, a, a regular good or service, right? So gold didn't scale very well. It wasn't highly divisible or divisible enough. So um, paper money had to be built on top of it or uh, a bimetallic standard when silver was used and then um, gold crushed silver and that was kind of the end of silver. And if you take a look at how the, the two economies that stayed on a silver standard was India and China, um, their economies took the biggest hit of compared to the ones who went onto a gold standard at that time. And you can read more about that in Safetyne's book. Uh, it, it will make a lot more sense than, than what I could tell you here in just a few minutes. But <clears throat> monetary metals um, suffer from uh, suffer from different issues than Bitcoin does. And they always like to say running a running a gold full node is much more expensive than a Bitcoin full node. So in other words, it is much cheaper and easier to verify or validate a Bitcoin transaction or that that Bitcoin is legitimate and not counterfeit as compared to um, to to gold and, and verifying uh, the authenticity of gold. Uh, there's different tests you can do to verify gold's authenticity. But if you want to be 100 percent sure, you'd melt it down, recast it and go from there. So, yeah, definitely, you know, the recommended reading here, Shelling Out, Origins of Money by Nick Zabo, highly recommended reading. Um, there's a ton of monetary history that you're going to want to go down. So uh, definitely, definitely jump down that rabbit hole. Let's move on to lesson 13, which is fractional reserve insanity. Uh, there's a lot of different debates around you know, fractional reserve banking and is it ethical or should, will we see a hundred percent reserve banking world, uh, in a Bitcoin standard, uh, model, or, you know, will we see more free banking where banks are free to, or whatever banks look like in the future, hold a specific amount of Bitcoin and have different reserve requirements, um, based on the level of risk that the depositors are willing to, to take in those examples. Uh, we're going to have to see how that plays out. But 
it's more important to understand that most people have no clue how fractional reserve banking works or how dangerous it can become when the uh, credit has expanded far beyond the amount of stock left in left in reserves. And there are there's a really good quote here by Godfrey Bloom, uh, and I think this is a really awesome video that you can see as well. Um, in, in a parliament meeting, and it, it's it's really badass. I definitely recommend checking it out. So I, I'll read this very quickly. You do not really understand the concept of banking. All the banks are broke. Bank Santander, Deutsche Bank, Royal Bank of Scotland, they're all broke. And why are they broke? It isn't an act of God. It isn't some sort of tsunami. They're broke because we have a system called fractional reserve banking, which means that banks can lend money that they don't actually have. It's a criminal scandal, and it's been going on for far too long. We have counterfeiting, sometimes called quantitative easing, but counterfeiting by another name, but counterfeiting by any other name. The artificial printing of money, which, if any ordinary person did, they'd go to prison for a very long time. And until we start sending bankers, and I include central bankers and politicians, to prison for this, outrage will continue. Um, yeah, that's a really badass video. I definitely recommend uh, Googling Godfrey Bloom and looking for that because it is absolutely hysterical. And he just dominates everybody with that quote, and I loved it. Um, I'm going to read a quick example here of how fractional reserve banking works. Um, so, all right, try to stick with me. Let's use a concrete example to better understand this crazy idea. A fraction of 10% will do the trick, and we should be able to do all the calculations in our head. Win-win. So if you take $100 to the bank because you don't want to store it under your mattress, they only, they only have to keep the agreed-upon fraction of it. In our example, that would be $10 because 10% of 100 is 10 bucks. Easy, right? So what do the banks do with the rest of the money? What happens to your $90? They do what banks do. They lend it to other people. The result is the money multiplier effect, which increases the money supply in the economy enormously. Your initial deposit of $100 will soon turn into $190 by lending a 90% fraction of the newly created $90. There will soon be $271 in the economy and $343.90 after that. The money supply is recursively increasing since banks are literally lending money they don't have. Without a, a single abracadabra, banks magically transform $100 into $1,000 or more. Turns out 10x is easy. It only takes a couple of lending rounds. And here you can see um, a quick chart of the growth of $100 into, um, into the... Uh, eventual money supply that it turns into over time and it is absolutely crazy so it's important to um, understand how fractional reserve banking works and why bitcoin is so special with a with a fixed supply and how that might change things over time and the last thing i want to go through is lesson 14 sound money uh, there's a lot to talk about here definitely go through this one on your own um, but what the point that I really want to get to is the stock to flow ratio. 
Um, and there's a lot of really good work by 100 trillion USD on his stock to flow model um, that is helping to be used as a predictor of what the Bitcoin's price could be um, over time. And it's interesting because it has a very high R square value, uh, I believe. <clears throat> it is meaning it is it is very predictive. And as he did an outlay over other monetary metals, the stock to flow model was pretty spot on with all of the um, predicting prices. So let's go over uh, stock to flow right now. So simply put, the stock is how much of something is currently there. For our purposes, the stock is the measure of the current money supply. The flow is how much there is to produced over a period of time, over a year. So right now, the current um, stock to flow ratio of gold is around 60-ish. Uh, so basically what we're trying to say is um, the amount of gold above ground or held in vaults is the majority of it. And only approximately, let's say 2% per year is being mined. So it's very difficult to impact the overall supply of gold because it's um, the majority of it is already mined because human beings have been looking for gold for thousands of years and been digging it up. Now, the difference with Bitcoin is when the halving, when the halving comes in in May of 2020, um, Bitcoin's stock to flow ratio will go to 50, which is getting awfully close to that of gold. Um, and the magical part about Bitcoin is that it has something called the difficulty adjustment. And what the difficulty adjustment means is that the supply of new Bitcoins being created cannot be increased or decreased at any one time due to a change in demand. So the, the halving schedule is known throughout time and the supply cannot be increased even with changes of demand. So if every person on the planet wanted to buy Bitcoin, um, the price would just increase tremendously, but there would be no way for miners to actually produce more Bitcoin. It is impossible. And the reason is because of the difficulty adjustment. So if more mining hardware comes online, um, the difficulty adjustment resets every approximately two weeks, and it will then increase um, enough so that it will uh, more Bitcoin will not be being mined any faster than... Uh, in this case, it's 12 and a half Bitcoin every block. So the difficulty adjustment keeps that um, emissions schedule consistent through time. Um, and that's really the, the, the main point that we want to go through with, with sound money and, and the hardness of money. It, it seems increasingly that the, the hardness of money is being defined as the stock to flow ratio. Um, so definitely try to wrap your head around stock to flow and what that means and check out 100 trillion USD's work that he's done on the stock to flow model and, and what that means um, for Bitcoin and, and, and sound money. Um, so that's it for chapter two, the economics of, of Bitcoin. Make sure to check out uh, 21lessons.com. That was episode 25 of the Beef and Bitcoin podcast. This was 
part two of the Bitcoin rabbit hole from 21 Lessons. A uh, big shout out to Dare Gigi for uh, putting all this together. It's a great resource um, for anybody getting into Bitcoin or even people who are have been around the space for a decent amount of time. I highly recommend it. So with that being said, if you like this podcast, please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify. If you have any feedback, please reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter. We're, uh, we're always looking for more feedback to see how we can make this podcast better for everybody and how you can uh, enjoy the journey down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Cheers. <laughs>